Hi, this is David Douglas, Managing Director of EBO at the Digital Agency. EBO are the proud sponsors this year of Radio Molly and Molly's Digital Programme. Do you enjoy reading ghost stories alone at night? Have you ever binged an entire true crime series? Or do you ever unwind by watching horror films like The Exorcist or reading the supernatural novels of Stephen King? This is the Dublin Gothic Podcast, a series investigating the intersection between art, psychology, folklore, architecture, natural history, and Ireland's urban Gothic writing. I am Dr. Katie Mishler, and my postdoctoral project is Mapping Gothic Dublin, Historical and Literary Hauntings from 1820 to 1900. This work is funded by an Irish Research Council Enterprise Partnership Grant in collaboration with Molly and the UCD Centre for Cultural Analytics. Last year, in December 2021, I sat down with Sarah Moss, UCD professor of creative writing and novelist, to discuss her most recent novel, The Fell. The Fell takes place in the first series of COVID lockdowns in 2020. Some of what we discuss may seem quite dated, but we felt that it was relevant context and that we should include it. I hope you enjoy this episode of the Dublin Gothic podcast. So could we start then by having you tell us about your most recent novel, The Fell? Um, the Fell is being reviewed as a pandemic or lockdown novel, which it sort of is, but I would like to think that there are other things going on as well. It's set over one evening and into the early hours of the morning in the Peak District. And it's about a woman called Kate, who's a waitress and folk singer in her early 40s, who is supposed to be isolating for two weeks at home with her teenage son. And she just can't bear being locked up. And she goes out onto the mountains for a walk at dusk in November on a day when she thinks it couldn't possibly do any harm. Uh, but it does do harm. It turns into a mountain rescue situation involving her neighbour, Alice, um, and a, a mountain rescue worker called Rob. And I think it is really interesting that you said how it's been um, kind of reviewed as a pandemic novel, but how it does tie into a lot of different, I guess, um, cultural phenomenon and political issues mm -hmm. that are happening at this time. And one of the things that I think really forces the, or um, one of the forces that I think really shapes the novel is the idea of isolation. So could you talk about how you think isolation plays a role in the novel? Hmm. Isolation is forced on, well, at least two, three of the of the main characters. Um, Kate, her 16-year-old son, Matt, and Alice, who is a, a woman in her early 70s who's recently lost her husband and is supposed to be completely isolating because she's recovering from breast cancer. Um, I suppose isolation is always interesting in a novel because it pushes people into extreme positions um, and forces them to reflect on themselves in ways that they might not if they had more opportunities for busyness and interaction. It always seems to me like a profoundly unnatural state. I believe very much that humans humans do best together. I'm interested in collectivity and community. So isolation seems to me quite violent. Yeah, absolutely. With this idea of COVID and isolation, 
bringing things to the surface or sort of creating a crisis situation. I was wondering, how did you personally cope with lockdown? Did you find any new hobbies or anything? Did you find refuge in writing or binging TV or anything Mm -hmm. like that? It came in phases for me. We were still in England in the first lockdown in March, and I found that very difficult. In England, you were only allowed to leave the house for an hour a day. And that sense of confinement drove me pretty crazy. Um, I usually spend quite a lot of time outside, but it was more than that. It was just feeling that I wasn't allowed to go out when I wanted to. I found profoundly upsetting. And at that point, you were still supposed to be terribly, terribly grateful to be alive all the time, which I think is a really dodgy political move. Um, So you weren't allowed to complain or to say that you were upset or that you were finding things difficult if you weren't sick or losing a relative. Um, and I didn't much like that either. I, I thought that, that that kind of silencing was was wrong. And then we moved to Ireland in June of that year, which at the time was almost unlocked. Um, it was a, a good time to arrive. I found the Irish lockdowns much easier, mostly because you, I mean, even if you were limited to five kilometres, most of what I do when I'm out is running and walking. So you know, a 10 kilometre range is perfectly manageable for that. And we were living right by the sea. So I had a lot of coastline. You can actually fit a pretty good 20 kilometre run inside your 5k if you've got wiggly coastline along the way. Um, So I mean, I found lockdown, you know, difficult in all the ways that everybody found it difficult, but not that one wasn't particularly upsetting to me, I could do most of what I needed to do to get through the days. Um, the first one, I didn't write at all for the first, I don't know, month or two months. I was reading. Um, I, nothing's ever stopped me reading, but I wasn't writing. And then I started working on the the great unwritable novel for a bit, which is a fine piece of escapism, and that kept me going for a few weeks. And then we moved um, and then I wrote The Fell in the autumn, well, the autumn in which it's set. In fact, I started in autumn 2019. Um, so, yes, do I mean 2019? I lose track of years. <laughs> I know, time... A year ago. Yeah, I, I think that's a very common thing that a lot of people yes. can relate to with <laughs> with lo- uh, with COVID. I honestly have no conception of time anymore. No. Somehow this is December. I'm not entirely sure how that happened, but here we are. Yes. <laughs> And it's interesting to me that you were kind of coming out of, or I guess you had come out of a lockdown when you were writing The Fell, and you were, you were writing it in the time it was set in, so yes. kind of contemporaneous Absolutely. to the time. So during lockdown, in fact, it was during the 5K okay. lockdown in Dublin. Right. And did you encounter any challenges to capturing a historical moment while it was unfolding? Because I know some people say you can't possibly write about COVID right now because we don't we, we don't know how it kind of quote unquote ends, which yeah. I don't necessarily agree with. But did you are there any challenges with trying to capture a moment as it's happening? No. And I don't see why there would be. And I find that idea that you're not allowed to write about it very strange. I mean, partly it seems to be an an oddly explicit embrace of repression. I mean, normally these days when if we do want to repress things, we're at least not upfront about the desire to repress them. But to say that you may not write about COVID and that it, you know, it must not be done 
seems to me very odd. It seems obvious that we need art and representation and ways of thinking about what's happening to us. And I also don't know who decided that you weren't allowed to write about COVID or when you might be allowed to write about COVID. I mean, you know, does it come with a best before date? Is there a point of maturity at which it's permitted? Is it permitted to everybody at once or do some people have to wait longer than others? I find this utterly bizarre as an idea. I think it's also interesting that the novel you wrote before the fell, Summer Water, in a way was almost an accidental COVID um, novel in that it, it deals with, um, well, you, you can probably summarize it better than me, but it, it deals with a holiday park in Scotland where there's sort of torrential rain, so everybody's basically driven to be indoors mm -hmm. instead of enjoying their holiday out of doors. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about the role of fear and anxiety in these novels. I suppose I'm interested in writing about what we don't talk about. And this has been called the age of anxiety. I don't know if it's any more anxious than the other era. I don't know how anybody would know that. But I think the drumbeat of anxiety gets louder partly because of the climate emergency. And the, th the difficult thing about that is that it should. It is entirely correct to be anxious about climate change. And we should be getting more anxious and the drumbeat should be getting louder. But then there's a question about how you live with that, because clearly a spiral of anxiety is neither productive nor pleasant. So there's an interesting narrative question about how to live good lives in what feel like the end times. And you know, there's another question about whether it's actually the end times because people have always thought that. But on the other hand, at some point, they're going to be right. And the evidence looks pretty convincing at the moment. So I'm interested in those changes of scale between the, the national and the global fears, which are completely justified, and how we conduct domestic and personal life in the shadow of those fears. That's really interesting. And as a scholar of 19th century literature, I mean, with the fin de siècle, all that, we, we've seen these concerns that the end of the world yes. is coming. Uh, so far, it hasn't seemed to come, but I do think you're right that we're at a unique historical moment. Mm -hmm. And I wonder about the idea of futurity. How do you think you can write about or talk about the future in a time where it seems like we're getting closer and closer mm -hmm. to the end? I think we don't know about the future and that's actually in some ways more frightening and more of a challenge for storytelling um, than if we thought we did know about it. I mean, I don't set novels in the future, but more because I think there's so much interesting going on at the moment and in the recent past that I don't quite see the need for me. And also I think we just don't know. I mean, the that, that's the difficult truth, that we, we don't predict accurately, we don't imagine what's going to come, and so we have to live with that, that agnosticism. You mentioned something, you mentioned about writing about the history and about recent history, and one thing I noticed um, when I was preparing for this interview, I was rereading your books, and I noticed that um, a number of your works, including Cold Earth, Night Waking, The Tidal Zone, and Ghost Wall, the narrator, or at least one of the leading characters, is either a historian or an archaeologist. Mm. So why do you choose to have historians or archaeologists, which the two are intertwined, they both deal with the excavation of history, why do you choose to have them as your narrators? I think it's that thing about context again. It's setting the small concerns of daily life against much grander narratives. 
And historians are interesting because they're often very sceptical about those grand narratives, or at least mine are. Um, they're much less likely to say, well, in the past we did this, or the 18th century was like that, or even the 13th century was like that, because they know how much we don't know and how many contradictions are in the historical record or in the archaeological past. So I'm interested in complicating those those myths of origin and those narratives of cause and effect, which are never as straightforward as we'd like to believe. And you've, you've mentioned talking about um, kind of the small daily life of people in the past and in history. And is it a deliberate choice? Because I, I, you've written some historical fiction, and it seems to focus on the lives and experiences of women mm -hmm. and the challenges they faced. Is that a deliberate choice to write about women's histories? Um, I think I write about both. I was interested in gender. I mean, Tom in Science for Lost Children is very much thinking about masculinity mm -hmm. while, while Ali is thinking about femininity. Um, I was particularly called by the stories of the first generation of female doctors because that's, I mean, I've always been interested in medicine, but it's such an interesting moment there. And I think the reason that women become doctors before they become lawyers or civil servants or really academics is that there are both conservative and radical arguments for female doctors. The conservative argument is that a modest woman won't want to show her body to a man and therefore there must be female doctors really for purposes of segregation. Um, and of course the radical argument is that women are just as capable as men and we need more doctors. So that makes quite an interesting entry point for women's professionalism and then, of course, it brings together all sorts of things that interest me about gazing, who gets to see what, what does it mean to look at a body, what does it mean to be in the body that's being looked at, what happens if the gazer is female and the body being looked at is male. You know, it, it's, it's pretty fascinating. And because I was thinking about art and medicine and about 19th century painting as well as 19th century surgery, there were so many questions there about ways of looking that I, I found very interesting and that are inevitably gendered. Mm. Continuing with this, so your two most recent novels are set in contemporary times, but you've written a bit, quite a bit in the historical vein or historical fiction. Are there any particular freedoms or challenges you find with writing in, writing historical fiction versus fiction set in the contemporary time? I don't think they're all that different. And I think there's an extent to which all fiction is historical, even if you're setting it in the current moment, because it's in the nature of narrative that it's in the past. I mean, if there is an ending, then the events are over. And therefore, to some extent, it, it is literally history. It's the written past. Um, I think writing contemporary and historical fiction have different pleasures and challenges in some ways, I don't think that's even true, really. I was going to say in historical fiction, there can be more space for invention. Um, but I'm not sure that's true. I enjoy the world building of historical fiction. But I've also written novels only set in the period of my own academic expertise, the 18th and 19th century, 19th century fiction. So I think that experience is very different from that of somebody who has no particular background in an era and is setting off to research from the beginning. I mean, there was an extent to which I'd been living in the 19th century for many years. Um, and of course, there was some detail I needed to check, but I didn't need to check you know, what, 
what clothes were in fashion in the 1880s and how were they different from the 1860s or what kinds of domestic technology were available in the 1870s because I knew all of that. And in that sense, you've talked about um, your own research expertise because you did a PhD at Oxford in romantic literature. Mm. Do you think that your interest and your expertise in the 18th and 19th century has shaped how you're writing, even if, if it is a contemporary, a novel set in contemporary times? Oh, yes, like quite fundamentally. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. I think... Also, when I was growing up, I read mostly 19th century fiction just because that was what was around. Um, And I think that deep immersion in the archaeology of the English novel, really, from the 18th century onwards, gives me a very strong sense of the the forms that we inherit. And I'm particularly interested in the relationship between romance, feminism and the Gothic in ways that I'm sure quite fundamentally shape my own work. When you get into the idea of influence, I think it can be quite a tricky thing to pin down and to trace, but I can see how certain preoccupations and anxieties over the body and, I guess, concerns with um, space and place that you do see quite a bit in the Gothic can be seen in your work. Are there any Gothic novels or novelists that you love, or even any supernatural writers? Mm. Um, I love Shirley Jackson's work. Um, going back further, I mean, Charlotte Bronte, I don't know if you'd count her as Gothic, Absolutely. but I think I would. And the 18th century ones as well. I mean, I'm really interested in that very critical reading of domestic space as dangerous. And I think we've lost that. One of the things I found myself saying repeatedly as I do publicity for the fell is that we have this story in which it's dangerous for women to be outside But if you look at the statistics, it's far, far more dangerous for women to be at home than to be in the streets. I mean, in the UK, three women a week are killed by their partners and almost all of those killings are happening in the home. Hundreds of thousands of women and children are abused in their own homes. We're much safer on the streets. We're much safer in the mountains. We're much safer in the parks. All of these spaces that we're told are unsafe for us are actually far safer than our own homes. And by contrast, as the mother of teenage boys and having had them grow up in English cities, I'm acutely aware of the dangers to men outside. Um, There's a lot of knife crime directed against teenage boys in English cities. Men are overwhelmingly the victims of violence in public and outdoor spaces and women are overwhelmingly the victims of violence in private and domestic spaces. And I think that's something that the Gothic knows, actually, from the 18th century onwards and that we persistently turn away from in the interests of shutting women up in houses and pushing men into spaces of danger. So I don't think you can separate some of those insights from the very beginning of Gothic fiction, from the ways we still fail to imagine and understand the environments that we inhabit now. Oh, and absolutely. Um, when you're talking, it, it strikes me that when critics talk about the female Gothic as a mode and talk about how it usually deals with um, you know, a beleaguered heroine who's in some sort of castle, stuck inside, being pursued by some sort of villain who is trying to forcibly marry her and then um, find a way to murder her and get away with her fortune, all these sorts of things. They're they're um, hyperbolic, they're overblown, but they're also rooted in a deep reality about women's own economic instability Absolutely. and about the dangers, the dangerous situations women often find themselves in yeah. within the home. And I think you do touch on that in the fell, don't you, mm. when you talk about domestic violence? Yes. 
Yeah. But I thought, I mean, I think that's there in Northanger Abbey, which we read as an anti-Gothic novel. But in fact, there is serious danger to Catherine. It's just that it's not from the, you know, the ghosts in the chimney. Um, it's from the patriarch and the patriarchy. Mm. Absolutely. Um, you mentioned the Brontes, though, mm. and um, I think Wuthering Heights was actually the book I decided to read for fun when I finished my PhD because it's just one of those books that I can return to again and again. And I think the way she deals with atmosphere and landscape, it's such an integral part mm. of the novel. Do you think that relates anyway to how you deal with place and kind of spaces in your novels? Because I feel like in your novels often, wherever they're set, the place is really important mm. to the development of the novel. I always start with place. Each of my novels has started with a place before there have been characters or a plot or you know any of those other mm. things a person might need in a novel. I think it probably goes back earlier than my doctoral research. Mm -hmm. I grew up in the north of England, spending a lot of time outside on the hills and on the moors um, with a grandmother who had been a primary school teacher and was very good at looking on the very small scale. She was good at identifying flowers and plants and thinking about how water moved through landscape and parents who were very committed to mountain climbing. So that was on a much bigger scale. And at different points in my childhood, I enjoyed those activities more or less. Um, the mountain climbing was not much fun when I was little. Um, but I had my own quite deep relationships with those landscapes before I started reading about them. And then when I encountered the Brontes and later mm. Wordsworth, I was already very familiar with the landscapes that they were invested in. And you also have that, it was the Peak District somewhere you would have spent time with yeah, as well. Yeah, my parents live there now. Oh, okay, because that's where the fell is set, so all right, yeah. that makes sense. Um, another question, and I hope you don't mind me going back to some of your earlier works as, as well. As long as I can remember. Okay, that's fine. Um, but I did read Night Waking for the first time, and one, the f you capture kind of <laughs> the fear and anxiety of a precarious academic very well, I will say. Um, but one thing that also interested me was um, the idea of the island that it's set on being kind of an isolated island that used to have um, some sort of almost, I don't know if it's quite a feudal system mm. or not, but it struck me as sort of a contemporary big house novel. Yes. Was that something you were, that was intentional? Were you aware of it while you were writing it? Or was it something that you looked back at and then realized? I'm never really aware of anything while I'm writing them. I, I finish every novel thinking, this is just a story about some people doing some stuff and it has no politics and it has no mm. theme. And I thought that even about Ghost Wall. Okay. Um, so when I'm writing them, I'm... I'm so deeply in the rhythm of the prose and thinking about the fall of the sentences and the way the metaphors and similes work. I really cannot see the, the themes until much later. Um, so no, that wasn't consciously part of the writing process. But yes, I recognize, I recognize okay. it. Yeah, excellent. I was also wondering a little bit about your reading habits in general. Um, doesn't have to be spooky or supernatural, but what are you reading right now? Well, right now I'm judging the Sunday Times Young Writers oh. Prize, so that's what I'm reading. Okay. But I'm also reading a translated Norwegian novel called Sixteen Trees of the Somme, um, 
and a book on the history of rice um, and Alison Hallett's um, COVID poetry, which is called COVID COVID. I like the fact okay. that she and I completely separately came up with COVID and COVID. Yeah. Um, yeah, and a bunch of cookbooks. You're reading a book on the history of rice. Is that um, you must do quite a lot of research for your own novels yes. that you write. Is that something that are you just reading that to have kind of new general knowledge or is it something you're reading to hope to integrate into your writing? Oh, I just encountered it in a bookshop and it looked interesting. Oh, good. Mm. Um, I've given a cookbook to one of my good friends, which was Mira Sodal's East, because we were talking about vegetarian cooking and I noticed that she didn't have it and it's one of my favourites. Sometimes I find it's tricky to give people books because I think a book can be such a personal thing mm. and it can be not just an issue of personal taste or what you're interested in reading, but for me, I feel that um, I have to be an, I'm quite a moody reader. I feel like I have to be in a mood to read something. Um, like the first part of lockdown, I just read crime thrillers because they were mindless and generic and they had a plot and they were easily recognizable and they're, they're very contained and very controlled. Um, yeah. There are friends whose taste I know well enough to be able to give them different you know, books that they will find interesting and stimulating when they're in that kind of frame of mind, books that will be consoling if that's what they need. And what would be your desert island book or books if you yes, had Yes, it's some? going to have to be books okay. at, the, at the very least, many of them, yeah. several boxes. I think I'd probably fall back on the canon. I think I would want... Complete Wordsworth, I would want Austin, I would want Charlotte Bronte, I can manage without Emily, actually. I mean, I'm glad I've read her, but Charlotte for me. Um, I'd want oh, some eccentric stuff, Kathleen Jamie's essays, Turvey Janssen's short stories, some Willa Cather. And what does your research process look like when you're writing, say, a historical novel or... For a historical novel, it's been at least as much research as you do for an academic monograph. And one of the nice things about being at a university is that you have unquestioned access to everything from archives to libraries. Um, for Science for Lost Children, I read the uncatalogued archive of the Royal Cornwall Asylum, mm. oh, which wow. was very useful, and which I could do only because I could rock up with the University of Exeter card and say, you know, I'm working on a project about gender and madness in the 19th century. Can I see your archive? But once I've done all that research, I fill notebooks with very detailed notes of the sort that you would make if you were doing academic research. And then those notebooks sit on my desk when I write the novel and I almost never open them. So there's something there about having done it, but then not needing to look at it or even not wanting to look at it while I write. Do you check for historical veracity? I'm using scare quotes mm. around that. Maybe later when I'm editing, okay. but not when I'm writing. Okay. Did you purposely choose to go down the route? Um, because you trained as an academic, mm. and this is more of a personal question mm. that I'm curious about, um, because I'm in the process of trying to figure out my own career in, inside or outside of academia. Did you purposely decide to go into the path of writing novels, or is it rather than going into a traditional academic route. Was that a conscious choice or did that sort of just happen? That happened? kind of happened. I, I mean, it was partly to do with maternity, actually. I finished my PhD. I did a research fellowship. I got my first academic job. 
And by that stage, I had a two-year-old. And that first job was in Canterbury at the University of Kent, where we could only get a half-time nursery place because for full-time you had to put a child down before it was conceived. And my partner was still working in Oxford, commuting back weekly, so I was effectively a single parent of a two-year-old five days a week and also in the first year of a full-time teaching job with only half-time childcare and no backup to sort out the other half. So I was working on the book that became the monograph on food and gender in 18th century women's writing. But it was before many things were digitised and I needed to get to the British Library to do the research. And that was simply not possible because by the time I dropped my son at nursery and travelled to London and crossed London to the British Library, A, there were no seats left in Humanities 2 and B, I had to turn around and go back to collect him from nursery. Mm. So I simply couldn't do the research that I was supposed to be doing. And instead, I used the time I had to work on the novel that I'd been vaguely writing for about 10 years. Um, And that became Cold Earth. And then for a long time, I taught 18th, 19th century literature, but in fact published creative writing. And that started to break down, oh, probably about eight or nine years ago. Um, when I found that I was, when I was teaching 19th century fiction, I was kind of shooing students away from fancying Rochester and thinking about whether they wanted to be friends with Helen Burns and reading in that fairly naive way. But I was then going off and writing novels in which I very exactly wanted people to be engaging with them in that intimate and emotional way. And that just began to seem more and more hypocritical. And then I started to teach creative writing and found that I could find ways of doing it that seemed to me to have academic integrity Um, and I've continued to do it. It's much more fun than teaching English Lit. Thank you so much, Sarah, for joining us today. We really appreciate it. It's been really, really illuminating. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here. And that brings this episode of the Dublin Gothic podcast to a close. This podcast was produced by Ian Dumphy and Benedict Schlepper Connolly with Ian Dumphy on sound. For more from Radio Molly, visit radio.molly.ie.